Hello and welcome to the Oasis Basis. It's the Oasis Fan Podcast. We're talking everything from Don't Look Back in Anger to uh, Liam and or Noel Gallagher recently coming out against COVID-19 lockdowns. You're here with uh, Josh and Charles, a couple of Mancunian lads who are just here to have a row at a pub and have a go at a bird. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to be probably not talking very much this episode because I understood maybe... Well, I understood like articles, prepositions, but then the other words there are very confusing to me. So I... Uh, yeah, no, just, I realize that sit a, a lot of it... A lot of the nouns in that were probably not really for you, and that's that's tough. I got my black cherry polar here. I'm just I'm a, jealous. I'm in a good mood, man. You can just you can coast this whole hour. Which I don't even know which episode we're doing. Probably the. It looks it looks like you have a postcoital glow to you or something. You look very relaxed mm, physically and emotionally. That's nice. I haven't had a postcoital glow today or yesterday. But maybe the day before you yesterday. Get, you don't need to get that specific. Maybe. Okay, cool. We'll post a chart. We'll post a chart online, and Charles can fill in calendar days where he has had a postcoital glow. Apologies to Amy. Uh, welcome to When Will It End? It's the movie podcast. Wait, so you love it. Are we doing we When Will It End? Or are we doing Why Won't It End? We never really. Let's do. Let's do uh, De Hard. So I gotta. I gotta. De Hard. Okay, I gotta change my mood then because I'm. I, I'm either gonna be. Like fucking in the kitchen, covered in flour, just having a good time with my sleeves rolled up. Or I'm going to be fucking Mr. Professor, laying the law, because this is my area of expertise. So I really do need to know, am I going to just be a chiller today, right now? Or am I going to be fucking laying down the rules about hard? Bing bong, class is in session. Professor Charles Hobby reporting for duty. Talking McLean. Talking Nak- Nakatomi Plaza. Right, He's wearing a off. shirt with a tiger on it. He has decided, you, listener, he is removing the flannel hoodie thing. It's yeah. gone. It's, now, is that a multiple layer on, little piece that you have there, or is that a flannel hoodie? So I'm very particular. I, I only like to wear clothing that makes sure that I look as tiny as possible. And I know that's probably not healthy, but I have a hard time with clothes that are even slightly too big for me. I want I want listeners to imagine I'm going to say two phrases and just put together them in your head and you'll have Charles in a nutshell. The first is passionate Radiohead fan and the second is Apple Store worker. And somewhere in the middle Oh, wait, hold on. Oh, here's another one. Uh bartender <laughs> at a niche That's uh, a craft one. artisan brewery. <laughs> And yes, you can put together from that uh, a pretty. I think you can draw your own conclusions about Charles. But so it's a beautiful shirt. This one is the Mandy shirt that I got. So this is the I. I could go for Halloween as Nicolas Cage um, because all I need to do is just wear little tidy whiteies in this shirt, carry around a bottle of vodka, and I. I think that's the scene where he's wearing the tiger shirt, right? Or is that later? I think I think you got it right. But let me say this: you also need to put on roughly fifty pounds. To really carry that look out. Oh, God. You think he only weighs 170 pounds, Nicolas Cage? God, you're so small. You're so small. <laughs> I weigh so much more than you. It is remarkable. Uh, so I that the uh, the flannel, I, I work at Trillium, as you said. Well, you didn't say it, but everyone knows it. I work at Trillium. Uh, the smallest size they have for shirts are smalls. And like three years ago, they had like a flannel shirt that I liked, but the small was, I don't know. I honestly, I think it's a 2018 medium, but I got it anyway. And now I can't wear it as a shirt, but I can wear it over a hoodie, like as a jacket, a light jacket on a strangely like 65 degree November day. This is a quintessential Charles story to kick off our diehard episode, a leisurely stroll through t-shirt sizing. Uh, Look, we're doing we're recording two episodes tonight, and uh, here's mm, a little pitch mm, for our Patreon. Mm, mm, uh, mm. They said we wouldn't go into the tent. They were wrong. We went to the tent. We, uh, we went to the tent, so to speak. On Why Wonder Ned, we'll be talking about the Great British Bake Off, which, of course, uh, I don't even need to point out why that plays into our whole thing. It should be self-evident. But the, these two topics have a few things in common. One, <laughs> they're both they're both quite messy. Oh yes, as as uh, as as entertainment comestibles. In both messes are made. Yes, Laura and John McClane. I'm looking at you too. Always making messes. I would say they're also. Uh, well, I think I want to talk about this a lot more on the episode itself once we get past this weird part of the show, which always happens. But I'm, I'm we're trying to figure out 
how it doesn't happen in the future. Uh, very contained in a space that you brutally understand. Like, when they go to the fucking fridge, it's the same way that John McClane goes up those stairs, loops around, and comes back at the stairs again, taps that poster on the tits. Like, I don't know, that was one of my big takeaways from watching Die Hard again, was how, like, the people who made that movie probably built a tiny Nakatoma Plaza building and, like, really figured out exactly where everything was going to take place. It's, it's, anyway. I'm, Slow down. I'm, Slow I'm your fucking, roll. And also, whew, the other, whew, the other whew. connection is that the, the roly poly best friends on both uh, productions have both shot and killed children. Uh, in this case, Sergeant Al Powell and Matt Lucas have both murdered children. But yes, today we turn our attention to that 1988 classic, Dehard, a story of just a, just an East Coast New Jersey guy getting all wrapped up in all manner of friggin' shenanigans in, in goddamn California. I, I do. I will say that uh, it's funny because you know we, we do the series to look at how worlds are built in uh, the, the the magical realm of cinema, and rarely have the pitfalls of a franchise been more evident from the get go than with Die Hard. And, and we'll get into this. I think Die Hard is terrifyingly effective fascist propaganda and one of the best movies ever made. It is so tightly constructed. Every single element works on every level. There is detail and nuance that most other action films can't even dream of accomplishing. And you, I want to hear your takeaway from this, but I'm going to say there's one obvious thing that, you know, we're, we're talking about this movie 32 years into its existence. It, it is the dominant action film of the last half century um, it's very clear where this could go horribly wrong. And, and I haven't really – I haven't seen two or three not on television in like 15 years. Um, it's actually funny so, that you brought up television because I watched this movie so many times as a kid that I, I felt the need to watch commercials at certain beats of the movie. Like I knew that when uh, Argyle drives around, can't get out, looks back at the bear, hard cut to some commercials from the, from the 90s. And then I think when, when he goes into the bathroom to pull the glass out of his foot, yep. I, that's a commercial. But yeah, this is on TBS constant. I mean, like we live in a culture that is ubiquitous with Die Hard. It's fucking like this has just been the movie in a lot of ways of the late 20th century as far as establishing uh, a terrifying cult of masculine violence. So professor, I put the professor hat on right now. Because it's professor time, okay? Now, there is no actual hat, but what Charles is asking us to do is in our imagination, uh, which in the past episodes we've discussed, is the ultimate movie. <laughs> We're well, going to imagine yeah. Charles in a, in a hat. In a hat. Yeah, it's a pretty sick movie. Uh, I wear a hat. Um, yeah, I mean, you could probably do better than that, but that's what we're going to do right now. I'm wearing the hat, okay? It says prof on it, okay? It's got a tiny little uh, brim that's buttoned to the hat itself so it like slumps over and if i want to i could unbutton it but then that just sort of looks even worse i don't know that's the professor hat okay if you want a different hat that's pretty clear no yeah it's a good hat uh... so josh i have gone through so many phases of my life with die hard because this was like the first r-rated movie that i saw my dad loves this movie for the wrong reasons um and i want to uh, maybe my dad will listen to this episode. Maybe he won't. It is free. Um, so he might be out there lurking. But I got to say, this is like, as you said, I've gone through phases. You seem to be stuck in my phase two where you where you are labeling it as propaganda for like awful toxic masculinity. I have ascended that. And I actually see this as satire much in the same way that Starship Troopers is satire or any of those well, other I was about Robocop. To bring up Starship Troopers. I don't think... While I think this is a very funny movie, I genuinely don't think the things that are mostly taken away from it are meant to be satirical. Like, like I have plenty of things to point to this. I would argue uh, Robert Altman in The Player, like, specifically makes fun of this movie with the end of the movie within a movie starring Bruce Willis. Uh, mm-hmm. Objectively, I think this is not a satiric movie. I think that that's my my takeaway from this. And, well, and it comes down to what I think is the major, the major obvious situ- problem with the movie uh, the, that I think maybe your dad is responding to. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I watched this movie. My dad, like, 
it's so it's weird to think that I came out the way I did after living for 20 years with someone that like like really vibes with John McClane. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, he sees him as a hero and like that's the problem though with like uh a lot of satire is that most people will probably misunderstand it and fall prey to the satire itself. I we're going to go beat by beat through this movie because there's a lot I think I can point to to try to show you. I mean, I am the professor of this episode. I have the knowledge. This is my dissertation is showing that this movie is a biting satiric takedown of masculinity. This is one of your weirdest stances yet, and I admire it. I think you're, I do think you're wrong. I look okay. forward to, to you trying to convince me. I would say the big problem with the movie is if you walk away being like, man, John McClane is awesome, that's a problem. Because this movie works not because John McClane is awesome, but because as a total work of art, every detail comes together into this incredible, like, I, I think every from the, the minute details like the guy getting the crunch bar in the lobby which is one of my favorite things in a movie ever <laughs> to the fact that everyone's got business like the the FBI agents both named Johnson delightful the the, re- the reporter has this weird beef at his station with the anchorman brilliant uh like every little subplot and mini universe seems so fleshed out and real and nuanced and the use of space as I've gone on at great length in other podcast episodes about is so brilliant like on on par with the seven samurai or something like that and I think they tried to make a totally fucking kick-ass action movie and succeeded and I think the messaging that accompanies that is uh, easy to become very uh, dangerous very quickly Okay, well, so, let's, let's start at the very beginning with the title. And I think this is like a nice entryway into Die Hard 101 is to look at the like, it is a pun. But if you just look at what the definition of Die Hard means, it is someone who is resistant to change. And it often is tied to a Die Hard conservative. This isn't saying it's, it's not like a pejorative. It doesn't necessarily mean this is a bad thing. But this is the frame of mind with which we enter movie is John McClane is not going to change. So I just want to point that out that the filmmaker knows. He's positioned as the everyman. He's a working class white guy from the East Coast. California is this decadent exotic land filled with outsiders, filled with empowered women, filled with excess. And he's mostly horrified by it and disgusted by it at almost every turn. Yes. So he is. Yes. And again, you have to really take yourself out and realize that this movie is not about how cool John McClane is. This movie is about how shitty John McClane is. And it goes it points it out over and over again. And we're going to go through them because this is a movie about the main relationship is about a man to teach another man how to murder again. This is a movie about a woman who is stripped of everything that she's accomplished. These are not just like, these are not cool things. And they didn't think these were cool things in the 80s. It's not like we're looking back from a woke era of 2020 being like, oh, wow, they thought take like taking away things from women was cool. No, like, I don't know what wave of feminism we were in in 1988, but like this was not people were not dumb and think that like stripping a woman of everything she has to be a speechless servant to a man is cool. Okay, but just to put this in a broader context, we're we're talking about director John McTiernan, who made Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which, as I recall, is racially a quite a movie, which I'm looking forward to rewatching. He made uh, Hunt for Red October. He made Predator. Nothing about John McTiernan would suggest in the slightest that he's setting out to undercut masculinity through a sly, like, winking. I mean, that, that I think this is you being very generous as a read. Well, let's, I mean, I would like to go through it with you rather than just keep coming back to that. And this is why I mean, we, he made this, Rollerball, which famously is you know a classic, thinly veiled reference to Triumph of the Will. And if you watch, I on YouTube I have a side by side thing. The Lenny Riefenstahl uh, uh, epic and Rollerball are eerily similar, and there'll be a link to that in the in the in the comments. Wow, good. I mean, and this is why we we sort of wanted to do Die Hard right off the bat, and we sort of avoided it because we knew this day would come where we would just bicker about this thing that neither of us would ever know. So we're, but we're going to do it. It's time. We waited a year and a half to talk about Die Hard. So here we go. Uh, I think, but I mean, so I think we should just focus overall. If you're still watching Die Hard and you think it's a cool movie about a cool dude, you really need to watch this movie again. Maybe you haven't seen it since you were a kid, but 
It is about the shittiest fucking asshole that has ever lived. And it's amazing to me that how the introduction of Hans Gruber like really cuts this movie into the new realm where you like John McClane lives. And this is the only space that he understands. And I think the dynamic between Hans, Holly, and John is like this very cool triangle that really brings out a lot of ideas that I think other filmmakers might have sort of not quite figured out how to how to make it happen. So you're saying you could have seen this as like a John Cassavetes movie called Hans and Holly and John and Fritz and Argyle. And it's just sort of like they're all living in like a commune together and, and dealing with, you know, no, I mean, per- I think interpersonal conflict. I, I think that Hans trying to steal and kill and it's probably it's probably I don't know. I mean, we'd have to workshop it maybe or like at least make some storyboarding or something. I don't know, like write a little script to see how it There'll works There'll be out. a link to the storyboarding for Hans and Holly and John and Fritz and Argyle in the comments. Are you going to, who's going to draw it? Are you going to draw it or can I just draw the frames? Because I'm pretty good with that ruler. So you're, you, you, you've shotgunned tracing the I squares? Just, yeah, I just claim the rectangles part. So yeah, you, you trace the rectangles, mail them to me, yeah. uh, and I'll start filling them in with uh, dynamic cinema. I mean, it is COVID time. I understand that. You think we could break some of those guidelines to just hand off the rectangles. It's yeah, pretty important. Yeah, but open it's mouth imp- kiss during the yeah, handoff. Yeah, it's pretty important shit. Okay, yeah, I agree. Okay, well, I'll, I'll come by sometime next week with the with the, the, the rectangles. The rectangles. Are you having a moment? Everyone buckle up for our longest episode ever. <laughs> okay, so to me, so here's here how it's, it starts. Uh, John McClane is on a plane and he makes fun of some guy because he's scared of seeing a gun on a plane. Then he checks out um, a lady, and then he walks to get his baggage, and he checks out another lady. And well, hold on. The first lady checks out him. The stewardess is like, who's this hot piece of meat? And Bruce Willis, again, it's one of these funny cultural <laughs> things where we take for granted that Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis at this point in our lives, but like, he's not like a handsome guy. He looks like Bruce Willis, you know? It's it's like it's, when that's... you rewatch um, North by Northwest and see like a 70-year-old Cary Grant or whatever being like, oh, when I was a kid and I didn't really understand how people, old people looked other than my grandparents, like... He was good looking. And then you see him in like 30s and 40s movies. You're like, oh, God. So, yeah, John, he already doesn't look very good. I'm not sure why people are checking him out. Well, famously in Charade, one of my favorite movies ever, uh, it's the only Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn movie. And as it was originally written, he is, as per the uh, tone of the day in the 60s, his character is like constantly hitting on her. And he was like, look, I'm a closeted gay man. I'm like. 30 years older than Audrey Hepburn, I don't want to spend an entire movie, you know, hitting on her. That sucks. So they rewrote it where she's hitting on him the entire time, and it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so th- so he goes, he he chats with Argyle about his, his life, and it's some really great exposition where Argyle just gets to, you know, chat. And... But Okay, hold on. You're skipping over some crucial stuff. Okay. One, the guy in the plane next to him gives him the crucial advice, you know, if you don't like air flight... Uh, when you land, take your shoes off, walk on the rug barefoot. Trust me, it works. I've been doing it for nine years. And then he sees the gun and John's like, don't worry, I'm a cop. I've been doing it for fucking 11 million years. Don't, fu- don't fucking question me ever. I'm a police officer. I'm, I'm awesome. I will kill and you. The second lady he checks out is the lady all clad in white, like, athleisure wear, which is pretty ahead of its time. For it is, yeah. Who charges over to, to, like, leap up on her boyfriend. And that's the, the, when we get one of the first tastes of John's signature charm where he goes, huh, California. Fucking California. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, yeah, so he gets there. And then they have a little bit more business where he gets to type into a computer where he learns that his wife is going by her born name rather than his his shitty name um wasn't that's i there's so many moments in this movie the script is pretty good but there are lots of moments where it's like he's like you have to use the computer to find out where your friends are first of all what fucking technology is this do they have like are they chipped where you type in their name and then it tells you exactly where they are in the planet or is it just like where their office is to be fair i think I don't mind that moment so much because I, I, I think it's just part of the like, you know, we're, it's 1988. We're setting the table. It's a technologically advanced building. And by the way, to answer your question, you asked about that set. That is the uh, – I think that's the 20th century uh, – let me pull it up here. Um, that is uh, – yeah, that's 20th Century Fox's headquarters. They rented it from themselves because it was still unfinished. So oh, if you're amazing. wondering how do they shoot a movie like that in a actual building, it was the production house's actual – like wow. headquarters, which this, is amazing. I will go to IMDb and click 
yes, I found that interesting. That's a good one. Happy, happy to hear it. I yeah. think the the scene with Ar- I love Argyle, and Argyle is delightful. And again, yet another thing that other movies don't really get how to do well. But having Argyle as someone to cut to uh, is just a, bril- a brilliant way to structure a film. But yes, that that exposition scene in the limo is, <laughs> I would say, maybe the weakest scene in the movie, where it's like we're eating our vegetables, we're setting the table. Yes. It is extremely evident what is going on. Uh, and but I would do, say for a movie that's so visually successful, it's one of the the, the more let in parts. Yeah, uh, that's and it's fine. It, it's it's you 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 get through because you have Bruce Willis, and I actually don't know the actor who played Argyle, but he is. I would watch him like read, you know, the phone book if that still existed, or he, he's he's got he's charisma to a hundred. Surely you speak of the great Devereaux White. Thanks. What else has he been in? Did he do anything after this, or is he pretty he's much? In, he's in Blues Brothers, so he's got a couple, uh, a couple pretty cool things on his on his CV. It doesn't look like he really launched into fame. He appeared on an episode of Workaholics and in a short film called Die Hard Is Back as Argyle. When was that made? Oh, it's a, it's for batteries. It's a commercial for batteries. Uh, oh, I, that just came out. I guess so. I wow. saw this, it was like a three minute commercial for car batteries. Bruce Willis in two minutes. It, it aired back in October 2020. Yeah, I was probably too busy getting ready for Halloween. <laughs> um, so th- I, th- I, I'm not going to knock that scene with a computer because I think it is a much better use of exposition to be like, oh my fucking broad of a wife is using her old name. But then the best part is when he's like, oh, 30th floor, and then the security guard's like, oh yeah, they're the only people left in the building. It's like, well, fucking just tell him that you're here for the party. They're on the 30th floor. Yeah. Let me go type in a computer. I hear you. You're always the only people left in the building. Counterpoint. I really like computer graphics from pre-1990 movies. So oh. getting some really good, some delicious pixels, I was all about it. I will never, I will never complain about a good monitor. And, and this is as a diehard alien and the thing fan. It's like, give me your bad monitors. I don't know if you felt this, but the delay between him touching a button on the screen and it moving is like a second and a half and it's delicious oh just thinking back on how you used to press a, like a crt screen i don't even know how that technology worked i guess i don't understand how iphones work but they make more sense to me but like i don't get how cameras work <laughs> i don't either light comes in hits lead something no. i don't know it's like lime it can't juice. Be lead in my i phone. don't know and then it just turns into a beautiful I'm just looking image. at you mm. i don't know um, okay, but this is where the movie takes off because, hey, he sees his wife and he's like, hubba hubba. And she's like, ha, hubba hubba. But because they hate each other and they don't really like each other, they can't actually do anything with that. And they immediately get into a fight. And Josh, I watched this movie really focusing this time. This is the last moment they speak to each other other than at the very end of the movie where he says the most 50s awful like husband coming home from work drunk on martinis. Hi, honey. That is the between their fight and him seeing her again, he only says one that one two word phrase to her. Okay, Hi, but honey. but everyone is a different love language, and maybe her love language is loving gestures, loving actions. Okay, and well they he, actually they'll you know, see each creates other. A, a pyre of of you know charred corpses for her. Oh, that's that's like a, a gesture of love. Okay, you did skip over the best character of all time, Ellis, uh, who we who we meet. Uh, just absolutely fucking on the slopes. He is going skiing in Holly's office. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. He is just. Uh, I didn't know it's. I didn't. It snowed in L.A. I thought that. I think if I was going to do a, re- a punch up on this, you know, when when he says, uh, "I didn't know they celebrate Christmas in Japan," and it's like, well, we did occupy the country for many years. Uh, it's probably. I mean, that's maybe a foreseeable development but he could have said i didn't know it snowed in la about the coke Wasn't right. that, isn't that better that's a much better line because the response joke did you even catch the joke it's like it's like we adapted we make tape decks or something yeah ha 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 yeah, yeah. yeah it was i don't it's, know it's polite banter i'm know. excited for uh, die hard 3 where he really gets into his race thing I am very uncomfortable to watch Die Hard 3 because everything I remember from the dialogue between Sam Jackson and him is – what isn't the whole thing that Sam Jackson is the racist? Okay, we'll, we'll talk about it oh in that episode. Oh, my God. I don't even remember. I'm All already I remember uncomfortable. Is I also watched it mostly on a TV edit and his sign – they somehow edited, like digitally got rid of the N-word. So you remember that scene where he's carrying around the sign that says – I do, yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm not happy about this. No, it says, it says I hate everyone. So I'm going to try to find that cut that's some real all lives matter weird (laughs) shit okay so uh, quickly the great hart bachner 
who is uh, a Canadian, plays uh, Ellis. And the, one of the better pieces of mm. trivia I is that – I knew he was Canadian. Hans, booby. That was improv. And uh, and Rick Rickman's response is uh, legit. It's maybe the best moment in the movie. It's Rick. He's like, I fucking hate Jews. And then pulls out like the ultimate Yiddish – I love it. It's delicious. So so this is another moment with my dad where my dad hates Ellis. My dad, like, he I mean, obviously because my dad hates drugs. I've already talked about this a few times. But, like, the fact that, like, he sees that scene of him, like, doing coke. But honestly, watching Ellis this time, he's pretty, not only is he pretty fucking cool, pretty baller, but he also is, like, the sane people in this movie are the ones that are, like, can we just calm down and stop killing everyone and blowing up the building and setting people on fire for a second and just like hear what we need to do to survive this? And I actually think Ellis not only is cool, but he's actually pretty much right the whole way through. He doesn't out Holly. Well, not out. Maybe that's what he doesn't like when he goes in and be like, I can get you, John. He doesn't be like, hey, this is his guys. This is her husband. He makes up a story to like protect Holly from hans in this case to still to try to calm down our our awful anti-hero john right that, that, that is a good point he could have certainly gone to a deeper level of being the heel or one of the lower tier antagonists of the movie i don't think ellis is cool ellis seems like a real prick no he's joking uh, he's he's okay. sucks but i do i i think that he and Dwayne are both losers because this every man in this movie sucks in some way except for maybe hans we have to, we'll have to talk about hans because hans might okay, be but, but hold the on. hero I, of this I, movie I, I, you're, you're. I mean, you're right, but I think you're, you're really working. Your, I love that. You're, how hard you're working this premise. I don't think. Dude, it's I don't have correct, to work at all. I just, I'm just, I'm just plucking. I'm just. Uh, this, plucking it's already a little. It's already a little balls. sweaty. I, I do want to let's save Dwayne for a little bit. Paul okay. Gleason. Spoiler: Dwayne is my MVP. <laughs> Dwayne. Um, Paul Gleason is one of the the great character actors. If you see Paul Gleason, you probably mm. know him best as the principal from The Breakfast Club. He is. The best. No one plays a dipshit like Paul Gleason. The line, I guess we're going to need more FBI guys, is one of the funniest lines so in any good. movie ever. It's great because at the beginning, he's just like, you know, you're like, oh, God, let's like, he's the ball buster. He's the annoying, uh, you know, officer who's, you know, commanding all the, 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 the tried and true on the street beat cops. And he's a real prick. But then he just sort of evolves into like a cartoonish, absolute fucking, like, brain melted lunatic <laughs> who just says incredible shit like that. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, he's good. And we're going to talk a lot about the cops because that's when that after the fight where he has gets into a fight, which ends with he's like, yeah, you didn't you 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 obviously like you don't miss me as much as you you don't miss my name or whatever. He's, she's like, oh, man, I miss you, John. He's like, yeah, well, you didn't miss my name. And then he gets to start a fight. And he's like, you don't know what I'm fucking this up. You're fucking it up. Also, he he, he berates himself uh, for that conversation. He's yeah, not but, proud of that conversation. No, but he, 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 he acknowledges that he's been so what, defensive. What happens and, is he's like, uh, this fucked up our marriage. And he said, and she says, you don't. I it ends with, I know exactly what your your you think our marriage should be, and that is the end of this movie. Is her losing her job? Her losing her voice, her losing her shirt, becoming nothing more than a woman in shape to take care of him. The last lines that our friend, the new friend cop says to her is, you've got a good man there. Take good care take of him. Take good care of him. Okay, well, hold so on. So these are not just like accidental like lines. Are... These are lines yes, pointing. It <laughs> no, it's not, Josh. There's so many. The way. Okay. The... Let's look at the women in this movie because there aren't that many. But I really do think they unlock a key to how this movie does not see women as objects. It isn't a misogynistic movie. The sprinkling of women in this movie really shows us, okay. I think, what the scriptwriter wanted to get across. Charles, you're this is patently made up. It's not. The guy who wrote this is Stephen D'Souza, who wrote 48 Hours, Commando, yes, Beverly Commando, Hills Cop, Josh, The Commando, Flintstones. Shut the fuck up. Commando is another one of these movies where if you watch it, the woman character in that is only there to point out why the fuck are we watching these giant men be losers and awful people to each other? Commando is another one from this era that was already making fun of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis. They weren't celebrating them. But you're this- talking about the most like one of the most coked out dudes from an era of like pure excess and ridiculousness. What does that matter? Wrote because you're writing in like this is actually a sly satiric woke criticism of like power dynamics when 
it absolutely isn't. You can't but, say okay. it absolutely isn't. Are you the coked out excessive asshole from the 80s that wrote this movie? No. So you don't know what they were trying to do. But I'm, I'm saying you're projecting a lot of things that you feel like you've discerned to a, someone who produced Knight Rider, which I don't really think so what? Uh, is. <laughs> who gives a shit? <laughs> I do this dumb podcast. And I also write beautiful poems. Like it doesn't just the output doesn't mean anything. You have to look output at what the, doesn't mean anything. I'm saying as a whole thing, you can't just look at like, oh, he made this shitty thing. So that means that this thing can't have any weight to it. And I, you interrupted me. I'm not me. saying it doesn't have weight to it. I'm the saying the women that... in this movie are people that he just strangely stares at from far away. Like it just cuts to him looking at someone in. He's like, "What do I do? What do I do?" And then he just like looks over at a woman across the street in a window wearing the same like leisure wear. There's the nude magazines on the walls, and then we get to the the women cop, which he yells at. Like they're just like doing their job, and he's like, "Shut the fuck up, lady." You lady cop, get me a real cop down here. So there's them. There's and then there's obviously Holly, who represents an actual woman character with her own agency, with everything that she wants. And I think watching her destruction isn't an accident in this movie. It isn't like this this isn't just a, a random choice to have her become nothing by the end of the movie. That is the point of this movie, is that men destroy women. Right, but I'm saying you're seeing this as a clever criticism baked into the movie i'm seeing it as this was the zeitgeist of a conservative era where people want to see that happen where people want to see as per the name of the movie it it is a reaction to cosmopolitanism it is a reaction to like progressive ideas i don't see it as a criticism i see it as that's how this kind of movie works i mean i get i that's just not how I feel. I don't get that sense at all. Other, so I guess you're saying that the creators of this film just hate women. I guess that is the other option: is that this movie is trash. I don't think it's about specifically hating women. I don't. I think the I think the politics represent the era. You know, I think the politics of the movie represent the '80s, which were like defined by you know a, a pretty horrifying conservatism that created. A lot of the conditions we live in today, like this was, you know, but we the, live the in decade a time. of Reagan. We live in the same era and there's a lot of cool shit happening. I don't think you understand. Okay. I know I do. I'm just saying that art doesn't necessarily represent the zeitgeist. It can be fighting back against the zeitgeist. I hear you, but I think you're ta- you're looking at Die Hard, one of the most like, you know, a cultural touchstone for an era that redefined like this is not the, I think arguing that it's subversive is very generous. Well, yeah, I know you said um, that, but I actually have reasons to believe that where you just don't you just don't believe it. So I don't I mean, that's fine. You don't have to believe it. I am the professor. I'm wearing the hat. I'm not wearing the hat. I, I found a quote where, where the, the, hat. the screenwriter describes John McClane as a pussy, as his, as his like what distinguished him from commando is that he's this guy was a pussy, though. Yeah. Right. So do you think that guy who wrote the character and talked about him like that was creating this like clever subversion? I mean, I mean, go I like I like I like what you're thinking. So I do not know. I'm not going to say I understand what the screenwriter, what the director were doing. I do think Commando is also in the same wavelength of showing men to be ridiculous buffoons that are violent and destructive. But so either way, you have we, I guess here, why don't we take a step back? I'm not going to try to prove to you that this is satire and this is doing this on purpose. But I do think maybe just getting to the point of understanding like what the true story in this movie is, is about a cop who befriends another cop who can't feel like a cop anymore because he killed, like he murdered a child. A child. <laughs> By the way, in 2020, to watch this movie, to have the black cop reveal that he murdered a child accidentally is i don't even know how to talk or think about that from this like 32 years later how incredibly perverse and weird that note is and i again like that is definitely played as being a cop is hard and sometimes as a cop you but do hard things it's like not murder a child it's not because at the end he the way the whole ending is shot so basically yeah we get this story and most of the story so as i said they have the fight they separate. Holly and, and John separate. They do not talk again. The meat of this movie between relationships is between the radio conversation between John and Al, where they talk about being cops. They talk about 
their families. They talk about all this stuff. They bond so strongly that at the end of the movie, they see each other from across a crowded foyer. And there's just a connection. And they know that they are, that is the love. Like when they come together and hug, like if you go back and watch that scene and see Holly in that shot, she's in the corner. She's obfuscated. She's looking at them as though they're like just weird and crazy. And the true ecstatic joy, if you compare that to him meeting his wife again, where he like says, hi, honey, to him meeting this guy he's never met before and only knows that he like is now a cop again. They like, they they don't even speak. They just moan in ecstasy when they hug each other for the first time. It's, it is a wild moment. And this is like why I just don't buy that this is an accident. This is so planned to make that to be the true relationship of this movie are two right, men. But, but that ties into my argument, which is to say that like as a call to like a very conservative fascistic vision of law and order in this country, it's the beat cops who despite their apparent differences, you know, a, a rotund Twinkie smashing desk jockey black cop and a from L.A. and an East Coast white guy working class you know, cowboy, yippee despite that, their shared frustration with domesticity, with uh, elitism, with the officers and the ranks and like all of that, that's the solidarity that it's showing. Like that's, it's a very masculine, a very violent and a very like he reawakens his ability to kill at the end. And it's absolutely celebratory. No, so I mean, so I think that's why Hans is so important to this movie because if you look at what John's doing, John is working under the assumption that these are terrorists for the entire movie. He has no idea what's going on. And he is telling Al what's going on based on his fucked up version of what's ha- actually happening. And that's why I think Dwayne is this like, in the same way that Ellis is like the fucked up version of reason inside the building. Dwayne is that on the ground where he's like, you are talking to a lunatic. You don't know who this person is. He doesn't know what's going on. How about you stop talking to this guy until we actually hear from these supposed terrorists who haven't given us demands. They haven't requested anything. So like Dwayne actually is the one being like, calm the fuck down, Powell. You're, right, don't but know then what the you're doing. Right, the screenwriters make Dwayne out to be a fucking absolute moron, and it's the white vigilante who's like wielding a gun and acting on his own hunches and volition that is the savior. And let me just uh, let me. But only if you quote, think that- here's a quote from this other screenwriter, Jeb Stewart. He described John McClane as a flawed hero who learns a lesson in the worst possible situation, and by the end becomes a better person, but not a different one. That's from a woke cultural critic, Jeb Stewart, who wrote this movie. Okay, so. You're probably right. <laughs> but I do think... Fuck you. I'm going to just end the call. End the call. I'm Professor. I'm Professor. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Professor, uh, here, hold on. Look at this. I'm cleaning off a little apple. Yeah. And look, I'm putting it on your desk. Thank you. I respect you, Professor, even though I think your class is fucked up. I think I think this is why I do this because I like this movie. I think it's very well done. And you either have to come from it at two di- different directions that your direction, which is the people that created this movie down deep hate women, down deep like really don't give a shit and they just wanted to make an action movie, but there's so it's so weird that to me like Nakata like when I watch this this time Takagi is a fucking imperialist piece of shit that is like they lit they, the script calls out that he's exploiting what was it malaysia i forgot he's like exploiting an entire part of the world they quote that alexander the great thing basically saying wow this guy is like basically taking over the world and now i'm gonna steal his money well the re so d- during the rewrite stephen d'souza rewrote the script uh make and he says he approached it with gruber as the protagonist so that's that's not a mistake Right. So I, so like, this is the thing is like, there's definitely anti-capitalist stuff going on, which is not really a part of the time because capitalism was in its heyday back in that era. There's a lot of misogyny in this movie. So you do have to either be just like, well, that's what this movie is, or that's what this movie was fighting against. And I think if you just transplant it to now, it is an unbearable movie. If you just look at it as like something from the era, which sucks. And I just, I, I think the only way I can watch it is to see it as a satire and to see it as a condemnation of an era. 
Otherwise, it's it's like so awful. But I I, th- I think that that's 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 so convenient for you, which I think is a problem. I think you're you're warping the movie to fit your morality. And while I agree with you, the politics of Die Hard are like I I think I can admire the fact that from a technical craft perspective, it is a stunning accomplishment in every way. I I love it. It is airtight. It's it, for a two hour fifteen minute movie. It hurdles by and it's thrilling. But we have to confront the fact that art is dangerous and art is full of it's full of the atmosphere that it was created in. And like the reason that we can watch Starship Troopers is because we know that it's satire and that makes it fun to watch because we're watching someone make fascist pornography that's intended to be satiric. But we have to also have the strength to watch a movie like this that I think is you know again. Uh, deeply conservative and and be able to say it's like Triumph of the Will joking aside to go back to that Lenny Reifenstahl is a fucking amazing filmmaker who, who would argue with that I'm Jewish I don't like everything the Nazis did but that movie is incredible um, so and I, I'm not saying that this is uh, necessarily on par with Triumph of the Will but you know I think we have to be able to, to not warp it to suit our own needs I think yeah. we have to acknowledge I guess this is me- a movie that yeah it, to me, it's it's just so flabbergasting that something that this outright misogynistic could be made that I have to assume that it's a satire. But I guess that's probably my own, you know, failing because I don't have proof either way. It just it, it is insane to me that you can have a woman, you literally see her be destroyed, her voice, her activity, everything about her is removed. And to me, that is like, you can't make that movie unless you are using that to show how awful the system that created like that took that person down is but see this is but i guess maybe i'm just being naive because i guess people who believe that would make a movie where that's cool the the point i'm trying to make is that this franchise is doomed from the get-go because if you watch this movie and take away and and your thing is like john mcclain fucking owns which is basically what happened but no then then that's the worst child or someone born in the 50s comes away from that movie thinking john mcclain is cool Apparently, all of America, because all the subsequent movies just quadruple down on on McLean. When, like, well, okay, so is that true? Behind this, hold on, we'll okay. find out. We'll, we'll find, we'll find out. out. That is my because I thought impression. that the fourth one was like, oh, I fucked up my marriage. My daughter hates me, and I'm going to try no, to the do. The fourth every- one is pretty good. I saw that in theaters, and I remember really liking it. But we'll, let's get to that. Uh, and that that is only a reaction to two and three. And two, as I recall, is deeply unironic and bad. I've heard, um, yeah. Okay, so. Willis was working on Moonlighting at the same time. This was his, like, obviously massive breakout role. He made $5 million for this movie, which at the time was unheard of. Um, He would film the television show for 10 hours a day and then come to work on Die Hard at night. So as a result of that... So he actually was Moonlighting. Hey, as a result of his Moonlighting, due to Moonlighting, they had to shoot in... They had to add in all these other little scenes without McLean into the movie just so they could, like, keep working on it yeah. while he wasn't on set. Sort of like so, that Blade Runner... What? Oh, just... Uh, it was sort of like the Blade Runner thing where they're, like... They lost money or something, so they just, like... Only thing they could do is build sets for months because they didn't have the production to actually make the movie that's why the sets are so cool in blade runner if blade runner was two hours of just sets it'd be my favorite movie <laughs> oh my god unfortunately yeah, they it's just not. done that okay so ironically because of the absence of bruce willis all of that detail that i love about this movie comes into it and i assure you in subsequent films it is all about bruce willis and all about mclean and that's where i that's the the, the observation i'm making here where i think it's everything around him that makes him part of a mosaic. And, and from the cultural remove of being a, a 30-year-old man-child, I can appreciate the complete work of art. But obviously the catchphrases, the quips, the brutal RoboCop-style intense violence, like that's I think what people, you know. Okay, but, so, like, so, but so we'll of, find out. The, but Die Hard was written, has, has new director for sure. So I, I'm wondering if it still doesn't necessarily mean that this first one wasn't a place of satire because someone else took it over and they probably misunderstood it. I'm not, I don't really want to keep talking about it because I will never know. I don't know that it ever even really matters because for me, it, it just, I don't know, the, the way you mentioned this newscaster where like the two male newscasters have some beef and there is a cut to the female newscaster just looking at them like, 
why are these fucking people doing this? And I think there are these, there are all these small nods to women in this movie looking at men, just being like, why the fuck are they doing this? And I can't imagine that that was just like a random thing that came into, that was included. But what I'm saying is that you're fix, so fixated on the misogyny, you're not seeing how that plays into a larger depiction of cultural fascism where they punch the media, uh, the media are ravenous you know, hounds who will do anything to get what they want. Uh, you know, the, the the people at the head of law enforcement can't be trusted. The federal government is incompetent. Like all of this creates a larger mm. story about the importance of one yeah. renegade white guy with a gun. So the misogyny is, it, in my mind, is part and parcel with every other part of this, which calls into question capitalism, calls into question the media, it calls into question the government. Basically, all these things like, you know, in, in a in, in, in a country today that's defined by a growing and increasingly violent and loud right-wing white nationalist movement, I mean, I'm not saying that it's Die Hard's fault, but this kind of cultural storytelling, you'd be insane. Let's say it is satire. Maybe you're maybe you're dead right, though I, I don't I genuinely don't believe there's any yeah. evidence to that. I would say, what would people take away from this kind of storytelling about the underdog working class white guy? I genuinely don't think it was anyone anyone ever has interpreted it as, hmm, what a sly uh, takedown of the action hey, hero. I think people are like John McClane's the coolest guy in the world. That's why I'm the professor. He sucks. The, the, that's the thing is if you're there is no way you can watch this movie and be like John McClane's the coolest guy in the world. Unless you're a fucking idiot or a Republican. But you're talking about this as though it has not he, – people have not already interpreted it that way. Yes, I and know. What I'm saying and- is going back to the 80s, this was released to an audience ravenously hungry for exactly this kind of thing. Yes, and that doesn't mean it was made to support them. Uh, uh, w- I mean, I think it definitely, based on all the evidence that I, I can see, it I'm was. Just, but also, I, I that's how out, it was interpreted, and that's how it was like baked into American culture the second it hit screens. I totally, I totally see that it does. You know, the way it treats the news people, like I just, I just can't. I, you're right. I am fixated on the misogyny in this movie because I think it is done in a way that is not celebrating it. It's not being like, oh, wow, look how cool their relationship is. As I said, they don't speak to each other ever again. This movie is not about them healing. It's not about them becoming like back together. This isn't a love story. This is about a man that desperately needs to control his wife. Well, but he also has to like... It's about him expressing dominance over every aspect of culture by simple, good, hard, yes. American working grit. So that's and, why and it so is confusing to me how the, a movie that for me could be so like, I think, pretty overt about the way women are treated to also have it be as a part or like a larger part of like, you're right, like this is about a guy. But if you look at his actions, he blows up a building. The movie he, like kills people. Like these the are not movie cool goes things. Out of its way, to, you're talking as though we don't live in a culture that fucking worships this kind of media. But that's what I'm is, saying. That does. Why does that not mean this is a satire? Being like, you guys worship shit blowing up and people dying. You should take right, a but, hard but, look at yourself and not the, like this shit. The movie goes out of its way to justify everything he does as the desperate but necessary actions of a of a vigilante. I don't think he does. If you watch the scene where. He lets Alice die. There's no justification for that. What, just not giving the detonators up? Like, they don't even know what the detonators are for. I don't, but they don't know that they're important. They haven't figured that out yet. He lets a man die, and that's not cool. Dwayne calls him out on it. Powell and John don't. Yeah, but uh, but you're you're trying to argue to me John McClane is not interpreted as cool by people, and that's just not true. No, I'm not. I'm saying that. I'm saying losers, Republicans, and misogynists think John but, but is cool. But we're talking about a if movie you, that... But there's no way to watch this movie in 2020 and be like, wow, John's right, okay, cool. Okay. Here's what I'm trying to say. You're, you're not wrong, but making it the artistic intent doesn't is that does not create a new reality where that was the artistic intent. This movie is a massive, massive film in American culture. It is deeply unironic. In 2020, if you tried to make a similar film, you would be killed for good reason. And we have to come to terms with the fact that this is a very well-made movie with terrible politics. 
and that's okay. And and like that's just the way it is. You can't okay. remake it and you can't recast history to make this a cutting satire when it obviously is not. And I I am pr- pretty sure To me it obviously well, is. It's, so you're we're an just going to disagree on that and I admire that. Like a John McClane. Yeah, that's like all a John right, McClane, Josh. you're trapped in a Nakatomi Plaza of reality fighting your way through hordes of apolitical thieves. Isn't that interesting how like they 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 make even the terrorists don't even have politics? Like there's just nothing this is my point. It's all fake. The only world in which John is important is a world in which terrorists could out of nowhere attack you. And then they turn out to be fake terrorists. They don't even turn out to be real. It's all a facade to just give this one man his moment to beat up his wife and feel good about it. He doesn't it. beat up his wife for Christ's sakes. I mean, not beat up, like beat down. Sorry, not up, down. Yeah, I mean, like... But, like w- I watched this with Amy, and she's like, why isn't she wearing a shirt at the end of this movie? And I never really I, I noticed did this, it, but like... I did. I was she like, there's literally... like now, and I didn't really... Why is that happening? <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. She is devolving. The, the, she just, like, becomes nothing more than tits. Her watch that signifies everything she's accomplished is but, stripped okay, but from here's her. My thing. And all she is left is she's cuddled in a blanket being told she has to take care of her because good man. Because you can't come to terms with misogyny. You're insisting it's not real misogyny. And that's fucked up. But I'm saying there are hints that... I'm just saying that there are hints in the movie that suggest that the filmmakers don't agree with this. And I've already told them to you. You don't it's seem not that to it, care. It's not that I don't care, but, but I don't the think other... those are real hints. I think that's you reading it through a certain lens that you want to see. Because I, I don't think that this movie yeah. is a trying to... Well, that's the beauty of textual evidence, Josh, is that we can, you know, like the Bible or whatever book you read, you know, there's things in there that we could just pull We wrote over. the Bible. That's ours. Oh, that's yours? Wait, shit. You wrote a sequel. Oh, yeah. Christians are the T2 of religions. They're like, oh, my God, the second one's so much more engaging and personable. It is the greatest story ever told. Yeah, Terminator 2. Okay, so we've we've gone we've we managed to get through describing the first five minutes of the movie, and then argued for forty five minutes. So we're we're pretty far into the episode. Let me say this: I'm going to do something a little unconventional here and say I am saying when will it end right now? Because this is a brilliantly constructed movie. It is delightful. It is fun to watch. It is, I think, philosophically horrifying. And based on my shattered recollections of the sequels, which again, I have not watched in many years, it's very hard to imagine things getting better than this. Yeah. I, I am not, uh, it's hard. Cause I, on the one hand, yeah, no, I think, I think I'm with you. I even, so if I'm, if I stick to my, you know, big shooter guns and think it is a satire, I don't think you really need to make a world of satire. That's why, like, you know, Verhoeven is, he makes his one movie, which is brilliant, and yet all of his movies get sequels, which strip all the brilliance from them. So I don't think there's really much point in continuing to, like, dissect the world of masculinity through a diehard. Or, if you're correct, it's just fucking guys with guns running around blowing shit up. Uh, yeah, that doesn't. I mean, that could be anything. I don't really want to see John McClane because he's such a piece of shit. I'm sort of. I'm. I'm really. I think I'm just asking when will it end? Just because I don't want to see Bruce Willis do this, even even if it is you know trying to point out the problems in our society or whether it is just a big part of it. It's really hard to watch, and I I think I'm done with well, it. Right? Because I, th- I think we're going just to go back to what I said earlier. What makes this a great total piece of work? is not the singular the singular presence of Bruce Willis. He is part of a incredibly well-told story with a lot of detail to it, of which he is one of the details. So it's the idea that, you know, he is really the, the person who emerges from this way more so than anyone else in the movie, certainly from a, like a real-world cultural level. That's a little hard to reckon with, given how I think he is a part of a great thing, not the driving force behind it. Um, I spoiled my MVP pick earlier. I, I have to give it to Paul Gleason's Dwayne. He made me laugh. He's so funny. I love a good dipshit. Charles, you suggested uh, what Argyle might be your MVP. Who's what's the final pick? So, so while I was watching this, I never really do this when I watch the movie, and I just sort of like say a name at the end of the episode because I get scared. But while I was watching Die Hard, I actually was like, who should I pick as my MVP? Probably because I'm comfortable with it because I'm the professor of Die Hard, and I really just know everything, so I could really just. Just watch it to see which character brought me the most light this time. Argyle had a very, like, oof, 
strong push from Argyle. And then he does close out nice. God, I got to say, this movie, I'm, I'm sorry to like make my dad seem like a total nightmare, but I just want you to know what I was living through. My dad was the kind of person that was like complained when when like black people were the computer whiz in a movie. Yeah, uh, that's that sucks. That guy's great too. Not only is that racist, yeah. but that guy that guy's oh, he, fucking Oh my god. Who is god. that? He, he's the kind of guy where like how is he not in everything? I'm looking that shit up. He is what was his name again? I don't even know his name. He's just delightful. No, ah, he was really good and yeah, it's just like I understand the danger of Die Hard because it does lift up this belief system, whether that was an intention or not, but it does give a space for white male Americans to like cheer when a guy shoots a European terrorist and tells wife to get in the car and shut the fuck up. Clarence Gilliard Jr. That's the guy. He was also in Top Gun and other stuff. So yeah, Argyle, bam, strong. And then it did sort of shift over with the introduction of Dwayne and Ellis was there for a long time. It's like, oh, Ellis, Ellis, Ellis. I love Ellis. I think I just got to go Hans. I think I, it's such a fucking dumb pick because he's the lifeblood of this movie. He's brilliant. He's like the only character. Like, it is surprising. You did talk about it already. But like, John McClane is the most b- boring part of this movie. Bruce Willis is like barely doing very much. I don't really get how this turned into a franchise. But Hans fucking, he's, I love when he does his American accent. Oh, that's a, that's a great bit. I that's love so every. Good. I mean, look, I don't think it's, there's nothing wrong with pointing out that Alan Rickman is a fucking treasure, one of the greatest, like, rest and motherfucking power. Holy shit. Rickman is so good. This is his big screen debut. He's absolutely incredible. I mean, Hans is awesome. And again, like, that, that, that's what makes sequels hard to envision because what works for this movie, the setting is perfect. The the side characters are perfect. The villain is perfect. Hans is per like just every and, and it's like how could lightning possibly strike on all of those levels more than one? When the like, only thing they're keeping is John McClane, right? So it's like yeah, everything else is going to be disaster. I think he has uh, Hans Gruber has my favorite line in the movie where she's like, "Oh wow, you all I thought you were terrorists. You're nothing but petty thieves." And he just like he I don't know his whole body language the way he just like scoots over to her and he's like, "I'm an exceptional thief, and you'll treat me with whatever he says." Like that line is just one of the perfect moments from this movie. If you got rid of John McClane somehow, I don't know if it would be possible, and just had it be about Hans Gruber and Holly and Dwayne. Oh, it would be such a great movie. Oh, it's a feast! It's a feast. Yeah. Also, I would argue that Bruce Willis is the most replaceable of the cast. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah, even Powell has, like, his little scuffling around charm, talking Twinkies and... Oh, the the, the child murderer? <laughs> I love it at the end where he's like, he goes, blam, 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 and shoots that, that stringy-haired Eurogoth. Carl. And then Argyle drives up. And he's about to fucking just shoot Argyle. And then Bruce Willis has to be like, no, 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 calm down. Please stop killing. And I just I see that's the sort of energy that it's like, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it is just like that's what was happening back then. But the just like lunacy of Powell and John and their connection and everything they represent is so absolutely batshit crazy and based on nothing but lies. It's like, wow. I don't know. I guess that if that's what people were celebrating back then, I'm glad we're not there anymore. Yeah. I mean... It's, uh, I think, a big part of being American, especially being white Americans, is contending with the fact that so much of our cultural foundation is so unbelievably drenched in bigotry and cruelty and xenophobia and, you know, staunch fundamentalism. And, and that's, that's the thing. You got to find a way to acknowledge that, look it in the eye, and also say, how do we not contribute to that? And thankfully, there's a lot of movies being made now that don't. Uh, you know, unequivocally uh, create situations where white vigilantes with guns solve all the world's problems. And that's cool because a lot of people who watch these movies and then go out and do that uh, shoot Black Lives Matter advocates and uh, try to invade pizza parlors in Washington, D.C. with shotguns and other cool shit like that. Wow. It's a wonderful country we live in. Um, I was going to mention this a long time ago, but uh, one of my favorite things uh, of the Trump era and uh, God, fond farewell. You know, God, the hey, laughs we got. It's not over yet, baby. Not over yet, baby. It's oh, not over yet. I, I miss him so much. It hurts. 
Uh, but no, uh, someone uh, on Twitter asked Donald Trump, Trump Jr., who looks a lot like Ellis, big Ellis vibes from Don Trump yes. Jr., uh, like a coked out, impotent loser in a, in a suit that he does not look comfortable <laughs> in uh, with a bad beard. But uh, someone's like, what's your favorite Christmas movie? And, and he tweeted back, Die Hard, uh... which is such like a normie, basic bitch, like, like dude, like, oh, yeah, I like Christmas movies, freaking Die Hard. Yeah, and then like like Bruce Willis and Stephen D'Souza have like gone back and forth in public over if if it's a Christmas movie or not, and I guess Bruce Willis for some reason says it's not when it's like, bro, it is like, I just think it's funny that people are like, uh, hot take, Die Hard, it's a Christmas movie, and it's like, yeah, no shit, they, everyone fucking talks about Christmas and every fucking big. I think the only person who doesn't mention no, everyone mentions Christmas, all. Everyone. Yes. Dude, this is one thing I don't know if I really noticed the first time, too, but the score, whoever did the score to this movie, it's like in the same way that um, uh, Inception, Hans Zimmer, like, slowed down that song and used that as the score. This is uh, that the ode to joy or whatever the Christmas song is. Like, the score is just like a slowed down version of a Christmas song. What a movie. And it's a bummer. It's so much fun to watch. Also, uh, it does end. So it ends with the the rape anthem, the uh, the rape Christmas song, the let it snow. And I I don't know. Is that icing on the cake for either point of view, whether it's just more just like dripping satire or if it's like they don't give a shit that this is a song about a guy that's like trying to force someone to just stay in and fuck him. I don't know. Oh, you're talking about a uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. That's what okay, you but it is it is commonly been like co opted as a Christmas like festive winter song. Ode to Joy. Goyam Goyam are nuts for Christmas. So I, I don't know. <laughs> Christmas is like the saddest to Jews. I, I can't speak for anyone else, but uh, really one of the the weirder, sadder holidays. You guys get like one big day, and everyone goes, loses their mind about like. You know, Hanukkah's sick. You know, we all email each other shit we might want over like a week, and it's like, ah, I like a CD or something. I don't know. Like, no one's like losing their fucking gourd. Right, and, and that's the other thing is that uh, to speak as a someone who's brought up not only just in like a racist, awful, misogynist household, but one that was brought up Episcopalian, part of the Catholic faith, the like obfuscation and secrecy behind the gift giving. I love when you told me that that you're just like, just give me this shit, and it's like it's I don't know. It's like this like fascination with surprising someone with this thing. And then you have to all sit around for hours and unwrap presents and just, it was not fun. I usually spiked a fever on Christmas and just like went to my room. Like, I don't know. I somehow had a physical response to that day where I would just get sick and have an excuse to no longer be there. I once got an ear infection where I had to take two of my mom's Percocet or Valium or something. And just like, or Oxy. I think like I took a, oxy and just like passed out <laughs> i'm sorry that's the end of the story <laughs> yeah i mean i passed out God, Charles. i, passed but, out. Like, okay, I don't uh, know what happened after that was there an impact of, of, okay whatever thank you charles for that no you my took pills it, and fell asleep it, it all i took some antibiotics and my ear infection went away riveting i fell asleep while watching the pineapple express recently that's kind of fun i woke up all danny mcbride was screaming and i was like ah what happened okay Charles, we're getting to the end of our first episode of Die Hard coverage. Uh, I think we really had a, a profound, meaningful conversation. Yeah. Uh, I think when you say a profound, meaningful conversation, you mean that I was sort of swayed by what you said and you were not at all convinced and don't give a shit. And you know what, Josh? I doff. Oh, my God. I doff. Being- Shut up. I'm doing something. I'm doing a little thing. I doff my professor cap. I unbutton it. I, I, I pour gasoline on it right on the floor and I set it aflame because I relinquish the title of the professor of Die Hard. I no longer have a dissertation on it. I, I renounce everything I say because I know nothing. I'm but a boy. Fans, I wear the dunce cap in the corner. You can talk about this on social media as hashtag unbutton the cap. We got there. The cap has been unbuttoned. I just think your first draft, your first draft take on Die Hard is, I think, pretty accurate and now i think you're having your midlife crisis where you're like i need to make this politically acceptable to like and it's yeah. just not no I, and that's fine I, I think i'm gonna change my letterbox score from five stars to a half a star because it's like as we said we watch like robocop 2 we watch all this shit that's like maybe sort of fun and you know but like if it's if its whole point is to like celebrate white vigilantism and all this shit it should be i don't know, just watch it in the same way you'd like i don't know watch that porn where they like a pizza guy comes over and he's like, Hey, you want some pizza? And then she's like, yeah, I want some pizza. And then he opens, but first he has to sit down 
and there's like a hole, but it's I don't know, I don't really understand the lot the like actual physics of it because if his penis were erect, he put sausage on the pizza. It's just the sausage is his so penis. does does he like he must stick it in flaccid, Charles? Okay, so that what, it can fit what? in the box. Okay, okay, and then I'm gonna go it opens the box and immediately <sighs> it's it's confounding. Really, you don't understand the movie Die Hard. Much like that. Hey, I already fucking doffed the cap. I unbuttoned the cap. I know. I here's but, here's cap. what I'm saying. RoboCop 2 is also a bad movie. It's also like... In yeah, that's true. Being, it's very like, bad. But that's the thing. This isn't a good movie either because John McClane's... Like, the characters suck. Half the characters suck. The action isn't that good. It's mostly just like... If you watch it this time, it's just like sh- shocks. Little shocks of little fire bouncing off the wall as he's getting shot at. It's not very... The fighting isn't very good. Dude, it's just like the raid learned everything. I'm like, I don't think the raid would really exist without Die Hard, but the raid is everything Die Hard should be. So we can just watch. Like, the raid is a Christmas movie. Let's just well, the, the, let's start that there's a trend. Lot of, there's some really good uh, sociological writing about feedback culture, about how like you know, th- there's all this obsession with authenticity and the the origin of ideas being the most pure, which which I you know think is really silly. Where in my mind, these ideas ricochet around the world. Where like what a Welsh guy living in Malaysia makes a better diehard. Oh, thir- thirty damn. years later, I don't know. Th- that that's the beauty of the world we live in. Like it, it, the original is not is is I would say rarely the best. Often it's the 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 echoes that that manifest and and tie in other cultural ideas together. Because you know the whole point of Die Hard working is our intimate familiarity with his surroundings. The idea that there's a bunch of different fuses burning at different points, different places, and visually we have a deep understanding of, of, of everyone's spatial relationship. That's what makes it exciting and tense. And the raid takes that idea, simplifies it, removes all of the shitty politics from it. Uh, I mean, I suppose the raid is copaganda in a manner of speech, but uh, mm. another movie where I'm willing we'll to give it a big ol'. We'll have to talk about that because I don't know if it is. We'll talk about it in the raid series, which is one of our two firsts. Okay, Charles, we have to start drawing this to a close. We have to stop this. So we're, I... we're going into Die Hard 2. Here's my memories of Die Hard 2. John Amos, a plane, skidoos, and snow. That's what my, my major memories of Die Hard 2. I'm going to end with my memory. The only memory I have is them using like a stylus to lower the ground so that the plane thinks it's... Oh my God, am I about to spoil something? I have no memory. It's hard to spoil Die Hard 2. I think John McClane wins at the end. They're like, oh, the plane's about to land. We're going to let one of you land. And then they lower the ground on the computer, but not in real life. So the plane crashes. That's the only thing I remember about Die Hard 2. That's a classic shenanigan. Join us next week for friggin' Die Hard 2. Yippee-ki-yay, mother podcast listeners. I'm sorry. 